0: Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez Packham. Let's get on with the show. Welcome back, everyone. This is part two of episode 33. If you haven't listened to part one yet, you should do so before listening to this. Also, I've had some fantastic emails from listeners in response to episodes 32 and 33, part one. I especially wanted to quote something from longtime supporter and patron. Rob from Australia. Quote, I also wanted to talk on non-clemature. I very correctly pointed out that Aboriginal peoples were not one group. The usual methods is to group Aboriginal people by language, then link them into larger groups. Because within the larger group, the people could speak various dialects. So for example, I live on Wadjuk land, which is part of the Noongar language group. This covers southwestern Australia, so Aboriginal people in this area call themselves Noongars. Over east, they use Koori. It is really hard. On meeting an Aboriginal person for the first time, they will often ask me, where is my country? This means, where am I from, or where was I born? When I ask them the same question, they give me a lengthy description of where grandparents even great-grandparents are from. How to address Aboriginal people collectively is also like the Canadian or US experience. What is polite? These days, Aborigines is considered impolite. Noongar is okay for this area. An Aboriginal woman I met said to say Aboriginal peoples and write in capitals. Also, we refer to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders people Although Torres Strait Islander people are a different group, Aboriginal peoples include them as there has been much intermarriage. End quote. I had no idea about this. First, then, apologies to any listeners offended by the term Aborigines. I was genuinely unaware it had negative connotations. So I have looked up some guidance and am going to use the conventions sent out by Amnesty International quote, Aborigine is generally perceived as insensitive because it has racist connotations from Australia's colonial past and lumps people with diverse backgrounds into a single group. You're more likely to make friends by saying Aboriginal person, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. If you can, try using the person's clan or tribe name. If you are talking about both Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people, it's best to either say either indigenous australians or indigenous people without a capital a aboriginal can refer to an indigenous person from anywhere in the world the word means original habitant in latin End quote. so thank you for clearing that up rob british policy in the abstract wanted the australias for a lot of reasons and it wasn't going to let the indigenous peoples get in the way british policy wanted Australia at first for that most treasured of British policy objectives beating the French and keeping them out. I'm not joking. One of the almost guaranteed methods of getting the British to invade your country was to invite the French to join you or be invaded by them. The Australian landmass offered the British a secure basis for power projection into the Pacific. It allowed greater security for British shipping and alternative routes for navigation and trade, if it was seized and settled by the French or the Dutch, then British trade and shipping in the Pacific was at risk. It also had the potential for timber for ship's masts, and would also let the British government give land to former loyalist Americans who had left the USA after remaining loyal to the Crown in the War of Independence. The next reason was the seeming potential to extract resources and to develop European-style agriculture. This was what Cook himself envisaged. Increased food production was desperately needed in the United Kingdom as population growth was outstripping supply. Initial settlement wasn't driven by gold fever, which would come later in the Victorian era and add further impetus to colonial settlement. The last and most important reason as far as the British government was concerned, was a place to dump their criminals instead of the American colonies after those were lost. Gambia in Africa was also seriously considered, but early naval surveys were unpromising. Australia seemed ideal for them, cheaper than a long jail term, a long way away, and the government would make money off the labour of convicts. Plus, if a few convicts dropped dead en route or during their sentence, That was a bonus. I'm going to give you a very brief history of the pre-Victorian colonialisation era. Early settlement in Australia is often talked of in terms of fleets being sent, but that's not the whole picture. Even the word settlement has become politically contested, since for many people on the indigenous side of the fence, Australia had already been discovered and settled long before the Europeans. For them, the word invasion is often considered a better description. To be strictly accurate, then, I think the best phrasing is that the Australias were first discovered and settled by the indigenous peoples, and then it was contacted by the Europeans who turned minor settlements on the coast into invasions by force. The indigenous people had started migrating to Australia from Southeast Asia to around 40,000 BC. They could claim perhaps be the oldest continuous culture in the world. By the time of first contact with the Europeans, they had a complex and enormously varied culture that spanned across a huge number of tribes. It is estimated that at the time of first contact, there were perhaps 700,000 indigenous people living in the Australias. The first fleet of 11 ships from Britain arrived in January 1788. In Botany Bay the first white settlers were 700 male and female convicts plus some children along with 250 marine guards and various officials and specialists for the Sydney Cove Penal Colony Not exactly a holiday brochure spot To say the convicts were from buried backgrounds is an understatement The popular image is of murderers, rough, tough, evil men The reality was very different. Take Esther Abrahams, convicted of stealing lace. She was 16 years old and had a 10-month-old daughter. She was being sent to a place that didn't even have buildings or a sewage and sanitation system. Not that 17-year-old Matthew Everingham, who had stolen two books and had already served three years in a prison hulk ship on the Thames, was exactly much better off essentially still a child. He had already been in jail since he was 14 and now he was at the mercy of the British state or at least the handful of officials and guards representing it. According to my rough mapping on sailing charts, the journey from England to Australia could have been up to 17,000 nautical miles or 19,500 miles depending on how the captain planned the journey. The convicts were powerless thousands of miles from the world they knew, with no real family and probably no real hope. They could be abused in nearly any way the officials chose and their lives hung by a slender thread. The colony was only days old when the first convict was sentenced to 150 lashes and to be clapped in irons. Within a month it was followed by the first execution. The king's writ was to be enforced. The colony in Sydney Cove was selected for its strategic importance as the finest harbour in the world. From the British point of view, it was not a moment too soon as French ships arrived only to find the British were already there. Even amongst the officials, backgrounds varied wildly. According to Peel and Toomey's A History of Australia, they included Irish, Germans, Welsh, and Scottish, as well as English. End quote. As transportation carried on into the mid 19th century, the makeup of the colonies became more varied, and they go on to directly quote one colonial official who catalogued, Negroes, Malays, Mohammedans, Hottentots, and Asiatics, End quote. Those terms of the period could cover a huge range of people from Jamaica, Malta, Calcutta, French Canada, the Cape Colony, Mauritius, Gibraltar, or countless more. All in all, Peel and Toomey identify over a hundred and sixty thousand convicts transported, with over half going directly to the New South Wales colonies from places already mentioned, as well as Germany, Ireland, Wales, Scotland, the Caribbean, and many black British born prisoners, mostly from London, a year later. Despite their best efforts, the colonists of the first fleet were in dire straits, starving and barely under control. It wasn't just down to lack of expertise or incompetence. Climate studies show that when Captain Cook arrived, the western coast was benefiting from increased wetness, storms and flooding from the La Nina weather patterns up to around 1790. These storms nearly wrecked some ships and on occasions killed some of the colonists scarce cattle. The seeds fared badly or spoilt in the wet, roads became impassable and even brick making suffered badly but it began to tip towards drier weather patterns as it swung into the El Niño weather patterns dumping a new load of problems onto the desperate convicts and colonists. Even seven of the marine guards had to be executed for robbing the stores. Things got worse when the second fleet finally arrived in the colony in June 1790, after nearly a year's journey. That fleet was run by private contractors to save government expenses, with predictable corner cutting. So it had not only suffered a terrible voyage, including various delays, but had lost 267 of its 1,000 convict passengers. The sickly new convict arrivals just added more mouths for the colony to feed. The colony was on the brink of starvation. The governor needed more than just convicts. Convict labour wasn't enough to build a colony. It wasn't just lack of skills too. Many just didn't have any hope left and were apathetic about their fate and uncaring about work. What the governor really wanted was skilled tradesmen could help the colony survive. He wanted bakers, blacksmiths, carpenters, coopers and above all farmers. He would have quite a weight on his hands. He was so desperate, he was willing to grant land to some convicts whose sentences had expired. For good measure, the colony finally killed its last cow. Like so many settlements the British had tried to create in North America, it looked like this one might starve before it could get established. By 1791, only one farmer was growing enough wheat to feed himself and two others. The turning point was reached by James Ruse, known today as the father of Australian agriculture, but in reality, a farmer from Cornwall turned burglar. He had been sentenced to death for stealing two watches, but was granted the mercy of seven years' transportation. He was given an acre by Captain Phillips. He managed to get it up and running and was given another 30 acres. He succeeded. It was proof that the vision of an Australia as a food producer was not just a fantasy. The governor also needed to actually be able to talk to the indigenous peoples. And when he couldn't persuade any to come and live in the colony, he kidnapped a man named Arabanu from the Eora tribe in the hope of establishing good relations, which, um, seems a rather contradictory act at best. Besides, learning indigenous languages isn't easy. A recent TED talk by the wonderful Tui Raven demonstrated how hard it was for the audience to get one word right, as English speakers used the tongue at the front of the mouth, the palatal nasal, whilst the correct pronunciation of the word required the use of the tongue at the back, the velar nasal. The example Tui gives is a word spelt N-G-U-R-R-A. Almost no English speaker in the audience could say it correctly. All use the forward to mid part of the mouth to say the N like November. I spent two hours on and off trying to get it the way Tui said it. Not a chance. So I won't butcher it here because if you say it correctly, it means something like country and place. And if you say it incorrectly, it means vagina. And I've got YouTube to play on repeat to help me, unlike the early translators between indigenous languages and English. Conflict with the indigenous peoples was almost guaranteed and seems to have started when a convict was killed before the second fleet even arrived, but the seeds were sown by the fencing actions of the colonists. Eventually, the third fleet arrived with much needed food and expertise. As time passed, the colonists began to explore and spread. Farms were slowly established and the terrain was mapped, but the fencing off of the farms increased tensions. Through the early 1800s, more land was claimed, and by 1829, the whole continent was formally claimed by the British for the crown. Sheep owners were starting to become rich, Of the wool trade, and soon rich businessmen raised the colony in mutiny against the new governor, Captain Bly. At least this one was easier on him than the one on the HMS bounty. Order was eventually restored, and yet another governor, Lachlan Macquarie, oversaw a period of infrastructure improvement and exploration over the barrier of the Blue Mountain Range in 1813. What explorers, Lawson and Wentworth saw, sparked the race for the interior, and has been called a landmark in the process of Australian nation building. To quote the explorer Blacksland quote, The party encamped by the side of a fine stream of water, at a short distance from a high hill in the shape of a sugar loaf. In the afternoon, they ascended its summit, from whence they descried all around forest or grassland sufficient in extent, in their opinion, to support the stock of the colony for the next 30 years, end quote. Laxland was an interesting but mostly minor figure. His fellow explorer Wentworth became a political giant in early Victorian New South Wales colonial politics. Food was always a huge driver for expansion and the explorer's news was world-shaking in political terms. People in the UK still starved to death, even outside of the horrors of the Irish famine. Poor workers were often thrown off the land as farmers enclosed it. Laws prevented the poor shooting game. Hunting became a preserve of the rich. But in the Australias and New Zealand, the old hierarchies were strained. There seemed land and food for people who'd never dreamed of it. One peasant family in New Zealand in the 1870s wrote home to say they had a two-room cottage, livestock and even a horse, a thing normally the preserve of the gentry. They assured their relatives that starvation was not a risk in the New World, unlike the Old World of Europe. One of the greatest blocks of the Victorian British Empire was being seized and shaped. Even Tasmania coming under Britain's iron military grip which I'll be covering next episode in detail. At first the continent and colonies were seen primarily as naval assets with food production a glimmer in the imagination and the settlements were to support ports. The first four governors were all naval officers. Not that New South Wales colony had a civil law structure till 1810 and throughout the early years the military lived in paranoid fear of Irish convicts rebelling with the aid of a French naval invasion. Brutality was routine. Floggings of over 200 lashes were known as feelers, as you always remembered them. Once the flogging was over, with the skin removed from the back, the flesh and bone flayed and exposed, a bucket of salt water was thrown over it. The authorities were terrified of mutinies and often. Barely in control of the settlers. They frequently refused settlers permission to move beyond official boundaries, only to be ignored by settlers seeking farmland in areas outside the boundaries of their area settlements. So they squatted on the land and claimed it, often becoming rich. This in turn caused conflict with both the indigenous inhabitants and the poorer population amongst the convict settlers. And the already stretched military suddenly had yet another problem to deal with. The experience of the indigenous peoples was very different. They had to deal with the arrival of the colonists and settlers. If many modern Australians look back on this as Foundation Day, many of the indigenous peoples refer to it as Invasion Day. The contact would upend cultures that had evolved and adapted to a difficult environment thousands of years. Where the newcomers saw primitive peoples and empty landscapes, the indigenous people saw complex tribal cultures and time-honoured ways of managing the landscape in a climate that was varied and often lethal. As B. Cruz, a Wirajiri, Gomori and Monoru Yain storyteller said, quote, we see and feel the spirit of our ancestors and our land, they are our ancestor spirits. We don't own the country. Country owns us. We come from her to protect her. When country hurts, we hurt. When our animals, our spirit cousins, cry, we cry. End quote. Some estimates say there were perhaps even up to a million Indigenous peoples. And according to the Aboriginal Art Association of Australia, quote, the Indigenous languages. Of mainland Australia and Tasmania, have been shown not to be related any languages outside Australia. In the late 18th century, there were anywhere between 350 and 750 distinct groupings and a similar number of languages and dialects. The first indigenous tribes to encounter the British settlers were the Eora, the Carigaon, and the Dhoig. Some were curious. And even interested in the newcomers, but appear to have been stunned by their ineptitude at getting food. Others viewed sheep and cows as easy to hunt compared to kangaroos, which increased tensions. The issue of fences was a big flashpoint, closing off roaming areas from common use. Words spread through the tribes of the coast. The newcomers were being joined by others and seemed intent on staying. Conflict was a matter of time, yet the indigenous peoples sometimes used ritualistic display, warnings and symbolic assaults. Yet the British were inheritors of the European tradition of decisive battle and closing with an enemy to kill him. They cared very little about gestures. The feelings of the indigenous peoples seemed to be well summed up by a man named Jagan during his murder trial in 1833 as summarised by Advocate General Moore at the time. Quote, You came to our country. You have driven us from our haunts and disturbed us in our occupations. As we walk in our country, we are fired on by the white man. Why should the white man treat us so? End quote. Yagin was found guilty of the murder of two settlers, themselves known to be killers of indigenous peoples, and he was shot. Then he had the skin bearing his tribal marks, Blade from his body before his corpse was beheaded. His head was sent back to England for display, a scientific curiosity. Being finally buried in Liverpool, it was only reclaimed by the Noongar people in 1997. The difference in worldview of the native Aboriginals and the Europeans was clearly vast. Even basic things about how to talk and express family concepts were vastly different. For the indigenous peoples, Families were understood as broad ties. Children understood a wide range of community relations and their own roles within a wide child-based peer groups. Childcare was seen as more community-focused activity with children seen as the responsibility of the group. Children were taught to do what is best for the wider group and to seek help as much from their childhood peers as from adults. That meant children were expected to be caregivers themselves. In turn, the adults expected the child to learn its own capabilities and set limits for itself. Adult caregivers in this framework don't encourage competition and instead mentor to help children assume correct roles in the wider family group. Imagine trying to explain that to an early 19th century European with the focus on competitive individualism, Christian teachings and a nuclear family structure. What to a native tribe might have looked like a fair division of labour and resources to benefit the group overall in a harsh environment might have looked to a naval captain like allowing laziness amongst low-performing members of the group at the expense of harder workers and a lack of willingness to risk setbacks necessary to drive improvement the ethic you don't work you don't eat was strongly embedded in european culture can you imagine the difficulty of getting the two groups to understand each other especially through interpreters that's on something supposedly universal the concept of children in many situations more than one interpreter was needed as one side passed their language to an interpreter who in turn translated it to another language, understood by another interpreter, who then translated it into English or French. Even today, there are mountains of research papers on how to improve educational outcomes for children of Aboriginal communities, or how to teach Aboriginal history and culture better to students from more westernised Australian culture. Now imagine that naval captain and a group of tribespeople trying to negotiate, say, permission for the Royal Navy to access a bay and a river and perhaps make a camp? Think how hard it is to order a meal in another country sometimes, especially when you don't speak the language. Now put one group of people with a worldview that doesn't recognise formal land ownership but has a complex stewardship of it, together with another that believes heavily in exclusive property rights. To quote from Spirituality, an Aboriginal perspective, Aborigines believe the natural world provides a link between the people and the dreaming. Aboriginal people see themselves as being related to and part of the natural world. This relationship with the natural world carries responsibilities, ensuring its survival. Each person has a special obligation to protect and preserve the spirit of the land and the life forms that are part of it. Aboriginal peoples believed that rights to land were part of the design of the world. As links to the land are spiritual, time or absence does not break this link. End quote. Oh, and don't forget that Indigenous culture, as I've said before, was not homogenous. Different tribes and groups in different areas could have very different views, traditions, and cultural keystones. Then, Contrast this with one of the foundational ideas of Western civilization: liberalism and the concept of the right of property. When talking about property, the Enlightenment philosophers weren't just talking about physical goods. It is better expressed as property of, as in, significant fundamental interest in. So if you read about people in the 19th century talking about the sacred right to property, Don't just assume they are talking about the ownership of a crate of wine bottles, for instance. Philosophically speaking, they are talking about the exercise of their free will to have spent time or labour as expressed by money to obtain the bottles and the contents and for them to maintain possession of it unless they choose to relinquish it by the same exercise of free will. Take John Locke, a legendary figure and one of the builders of modern Western thought, Quote, though the Earth and all inferior creatures be common to all men, yet every man has a property in his own person. this no body has any right to but himself. the labour of his body and the work of his hands we may say are properly his, whatsoever then he removes out of the state that nature hath provided, and left it in, he hath mixed his labour with, and joined it to something that is his own, and thereby makes it his property. It being by him removed from the common state nature placed it, it hath by his labour something annexed to it. That excludes the common right of other men, for this labour, being the unquestionable property of the labourer, no man but he can have a right to what that is once joined to, at least where there is enough, and as good left in common for others, End quote. That is a very profound and deep piece of philosophy, and we could spend a long time exploring it and picking holes in it. So for the Western mind in this approach, property comes from the labour of the individual, and that labour is his property since it allows him to live by taking from nature what he needs to live and any interference with his goods is theft from his property of labour. By taking an apple from nature he is using his unique property, his autonomy and right to survive and therefore at the moment of picking the apple becomes his legal property. To deprive him of it is to interfere with his property of labour and the property of his free will and hence his right to survive. Only by the excise of his own free will to transfer it can an interference with property be accepted. To fail to respect this is to undermine the most integral part of his God-given humanity, that is his free will, and imperil his survival. Therefore, a government or person that fails to respect this right is tyrannical, and so any government has to be non tyrannical and may only exist and extract property as long as the governed consent to it. The government on this formula exists only to defend those property rights in general, not a specific crate of wine in itself. Moreover, Locke looked at the tricky point whether it was right for an individual to obtain a property from nature in the first place. He argued that yes, taking an apple from a common tree was strictly speaking depriving the whole world of the same ability to pick that apple. That was okay though, since crucially, acquiring universal consent would be impossible and waiting for such consent would lead to universal starvation. Therefore, people who failed to have exclusive property rights would risk starvation in the Garden of Eden, as he put it. And you can see the collision course this puts people on in the debate between the settlers with exclusive property and the native indigenous people's beliefs of property in common. For Locke, it meant that humans have a moral right to self-preservation and thus by guaranteeing property rights, A society guaranteed not only the survival of the individual but also the betterment of the society since only a sovereign individual could hold property rights and thus only a sovereign individual would be motivated to improve the property which would not happen for goods held in common. Think of it like this. If an individual encloses an untamed stretch of land and is therefore able to enjoy exclusive access to it, he will be able to grow food to feed himself, so he is more likely to survive. By upholding his exclusive right of property, a government is incentivizing him to produce more food by improving the farm, since the landowner knows he will get exclusive right over the estate and the food it produces. He will eventually hit a point, where he generates a huge surplus that he is willing to trade for other goods. He therefore becomes a net food producer, a more economically active agent and probably an importer of ale and clothing. A virtuous cycle is kick-started benefiting everyone, at least in abstract theory. The critical conclusion under this philosophy becomes that all land must be owned and can only be transferred between people by consent. To hold no property or to hold property in common under this philosophy is immoral. Now, this is a moral and economic debate that has echoed down the ages and rages in various forms today. As with all political philosophy, there were many people who agreed with it and many people who definitely do not. There are a lot of critiques that can be made of this philosophy. Many Victorian liberals would actually totally reject Locke's formulation of his law on property, as would Marxists, various capitalist economists, and many others. It is worth bearing in mind, too, that Locke himself was clear. The property ownership was a universal right, so people using his theory for justification of seizing lands from indigenous people were being very selective in their reading of him. It was unoccupied land or land held in common that his theory applied to, not occupied lands that weren't being made best use of. The real world actions of people outside the academic debate of political, cultural and imperial theory was usually much more complex and contained a lot of random impulses Or vague cultural drivers Just like there were vast differences Between the various indigenous groups British culture Even in the Royal Navy Or the army Was not homogenous either Some officers Might be well educated Christian fundamentalists Others might be fanatical Free marketeers A good number Might be My country Right or wrong Most others Simply didn't care Who the enemy was as long as they got paid. If the king or queen paid them to kill men in blue uniforms, they'd kill men in blue uniforms, or in white ones, or green ones, or red, or in turbans, or in loincloths. As long as the coin was paid, they would fight. Imagine a hypothetical, poor, overworked translator trying to get the concept of land ownership through to the native tribe that she was talking to, and then trying to explain to the naval captain that the land is viewed as a thing, designed in the original dreaming and that no one can own it or give it away since everyone has a duty to care for it as a communal resource. Even today there are serious difficulties in understanding between Australian Aboriginal cultures and tribes and what is called more mainstream Australian culture and this is exacerbated often by structural racism. Modern Australian schooling at least emphasises the need for engagement and wider perspectives so that Aboriginal culture and Native views of culture and history are included, which has historically not been the case during the Victorian Imperial period, although there were some specialist scholars who took an interest. For instance, here's a quote for modern educators in modern schools quote, Judging Aboriginal cultural beliefs and practices from a Western world view, can be a barrier that prevents Aboriginal people from engaging with non-Aboriginal people. The worker must be both aware and comfortable with cross-cultural differences and ensure that these differences are valued and not negated or judged. Aboriginal people, and particularly children, can quickly detect when non-Aboriginal people are unable to disengage their Western framework, or being insincere. This can result in superficial engagement or avoidance altogether. And that's from Can You Hear Me? The Active Engagement Aboriginal Children in the Development of Social Policy by Non-Aboriginals from the Perth Western Australia Office for Children and Youth. Sounds pretty good at first reading. That's also pretty high level if you are dealing with an art or creative writing class, your worldview can be very accommodating, and rightly so. What about in science? How can modern science deal with the concept of dream time at the same time as teaching continental drift theory, or the geology of the earth, or the benefits of traditional medicines with spiritual elements versus vaccinations? Science doesn't accommodate these kinds of alternative worldviews. If that seems a stretch, just look at the debate in the USA about how to deal with Christian communities that want intelligent design taught in science classes. Science doesn't care about alternative ideologies. A hypothesis is tested against available evidence. And if there is sufficient positive evidence and insufficient negative evidence, the hypothesis is deemed proved and accepted as a scientific fact. If the weight of evidence is overwhelming. It is upgraded to a scientific theory. That means something is either scientifically verified or not. No amount of cultural tolerance will ever make homeopathy a scientifically based medicine. To criticise this as Western science being a colonial enterprise is to fundamentally misunderstand this process. The origin of the thing being studied doesn't matter. If a traditional remedy is studied and upheld, as being effective by scientific method, it becomes medicine. That's why the phrase alternative medicine is misnomer. A thing is either effective, in which case it is medicine, or it is not effective, in which case it isn't. Science can't accept some cultural claims in the same way it can't accept the world being claimed as flat or the moon being hollow. It has nothing to do with being narrow-minded or imperialistic It is just the way the scientific method itself works. And as far as we know, science is the best method for revealing facts about reality. No matter how much we respect a person's right to hold a belief, like the world being created in the dream time or in seven days by God, scientifically, we have to state that those beliefs are fundamentally wrong. Now, that doesn't mean those beliefs cannot be held or even taught in certain parts of schools. But it strikes at the heart of the scientific basis of modern industrial societies. A child being educated can be told it is fine to hold on to beliefs of their community or family. What they can't do is be accepted in a science class. Evolution is correct. Intelligent design is not. The earth is an imperfect sphere, not flat. Dream time and genesis are myths. The theory of planetary formation known as the nebula hypothesis, shows that billions of years ago, the solar system formed from the gravitational collapse of a giant molecular cloud. And this is a scientific fact capable of testing and reputation under the scientific method. I'm bringing this up because these debates rage today in our supposedly tolerant, enlightened, science-based rational societies that aim to tolerate diversity and are more and more at least willing to challenge racism head on. Look at how heated these debates can get today. Now imagine how much more difficult this kind of culture clash must have felt back in an age where tolerating cultural diversity wasn't always recognised, let alone seem as a good thing. When the British constantly looked for treaties to sign with leaders, they were coming from a cultural background. Where there was a hierarchy, defined property ownership, and a way to transfer property legally, perhaps multiple times. The cultures they were talking to in the Australias didn't really have that. And even when they did, perhaps this was only one of the tribes from the area. Why should other tribes accept the treaty? And what's even harder is that we're only looking at the philosophical views at a bird's eye level without even accounting for the human factors. Sitting uncomfortably under all of this were the wider European cultural keystones around the right of conquest, the lack of a recognised concept of indigenous land ownership, the European right of land ownership, and, most lethally and tragically of all, the practice in Western culture of decisive battle by the citizen soldiers, once the philosophy is stripped away Perhaps in the final analysis, European colonial power rested on force of arms. Then we must recognise that the European powers were incredibly good at war. The answer to Jaegen's question at his trial about why the white man came and what he wanted can't be answered merely by misunderstandings, cultural differences, or contrasting worldviews, the fundamental answer. Is that the British Georgian government wanted the land and had the military means to take it and then hold it? The Victorian governments, in turn, were not going to turn the clock back either. Food alone was a massive draw. Hungry people flooded out of Europe in the 19th century. In all, it is estimated that immigration from Europe was around 50 million people heading to America, Canada. Australia, New Zealand, South America and South Africa. As Lily Collingham noted in her excellent book, The Hungry Empire, the Polish words to emigrate was Chebem. I apologise for the pronunciation. But those words literally meant to find bread, a better life. And the Irish experience speaks for itself. Desperately poor and impoverished and starving from the great famine. But many settlers came to Australia, not in search of food, but to gaze at the wonders of the New World, a scientific bounty undreamed of. In 1836, a ship entered the harbour at Sydney. A quiet naturalist came ashore and explored the Blue Mountains. Charles Darwin would do more to shape human civilization than anyone before, and his theory of descent by natural selection was heavily inspired by his time in the Blue Mountains and his stop at a ranch called Wallerang. It was here that his encounters with a new animal species, the platypus, shook the foundations of his belief in creationism. He couched the problem carefully in his diaries to avoid upsetting his Christian relatives if they read them. Essentially, the platypus behaved like the European water rat, yet was clearly... A different species, yet in such a similar niche. He wrote in his journal, quote, a disbeliever in everything beyond his own reason, might exclaim, surely two distinct creators must have been at work. Their object, however, has been the same, and certainly in each case the end is complete. Would any two workmen ever hit on so beautiful, so simple, yet so artificial a contrivance? End quote Or, as geneticist and Darwin expert Frank Nicholas has put it in plainer language, quote, the obvious question was, if you were an omnipotent creator, why would you bother going to all the trouble of designing two different species to occupy very similar ecological niches? End quote. A profound question that would lead Darwin eventually to amazing places this new Yet ancient world was leading to new questions, especially as people began to ask why so many strange things were being discovered that didn't feature in the Bible or any of the ancient Greek writings. In 1837, Victoria ascended the throne and the Australias were being tied firmly into the empire. What form they would take though was still very much unknown. It certainly wouldn't magically solve all the problems But it would bring in a new era and different approaches tied to politics, religion, and industry. Convicts would be less a part of the future. German immigrants were a noted presence, already beginning Lutheran missionary work and founding the oldest German settlement in Australia, Handorf, near Adelaide. In 1840, a refugee ship arrived from Germany, carrying over 200 more. Lutheran refugee migrants the German presence in Australia was large enough to support a German language newspaper in 1847. They were regarded as hard efficient workers swiftly building distinctly German settlements. As their ships returned to Europe they took with them grain and wheat from Australia deemed superior to German produce. This acted like a magnet for more Germans to follow other ethnic groups and nations had their own patterns of migration to Australia and their own motives. Far removed from the early days of a penal dumping ground, the Victorian vision for Australia was very much about a fresh start, food, hope and prosperity. We have now at least put the early British occupation and colonisation of the Australias and the oppression of the Aboriginal peoples into context alongside the many other empires and migrations of history but outlined some particular flashpoints and the viciousness. Next time, we will get to some of the details up close as we descend the circles of hell in Tasmania, then known as Van Damen's Land. I hope you'll join me. Thank you for listening, everyone. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at Age of victoria podcast at gmail.com follow me on twitter at age of victoria visit the website at www.ageofvictoria-podcast.com and the show also has a facebook page and group just search for the age of victoria don't forget to leave a review on apple podcasts or itunes it takes less time than making a cup of coffee If you want to support the show on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes, or you can go to patreon.com and search for the Age of Victoria podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.